Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, who's getting the COVID vaccine and who isn't? We know federal employees are because they've been mandated to, and Governor Reeves is crying foul. Kids are getting the shot as well. The Pfizer vaccine for children ages 5 to 11 was approved by the FDA last week. Plenty of Mississippians, though, still haven't received the jab. Coming up in a few minutes, we ask a pair of experts why that's the case. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The state of Mississippi has joined a lawsuit filed by the Attorney General of Indiana that alleges new COVID-19 vaccine mandates for federal employees are unconstitutional. In a statement announcing the suit, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves called President Joe Biden, who implemented the vaccine rules, a tyrant. Such sweeping executive action, though, isn't without historical precedent. That's according to Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Gershon speaks with Desiree Fr- I mean, we go back to the legal drinking age being 21 in every state in this country. Historically, drinking age was set by states, and they had different drinking ages throughout throughout history. Uh, when I was in college, the drinking age was 18. But what happened was the, uh, the federal government said, hey, you know, um, we've had a lot of drunk driving accidents, and we want to cut down on those. So what we're going to do is withhold federal funding for roads unless states agree to raise the drinking age to 21. So, you know, that that is the way that the federal government has used its funding uh, of state projects uh, in the past to uh, to mandate certain behavior or at least certainly to encourage certain behavior. And so that's not really that unusual, Um, you know, to say that the federal government cannot mandate those receiving government funds to, you know, take the vaccine. That's part of getting that money. The lawsuit says that Biden 
is exceeding his authority. But from what you're saying, it sounds like that may not be the case. The president does have authority over, uh, ultimately, and the federal government has authority over uh, how, uh, you know, who receives federal funds and, and uh, you know, and, and the requirements for receiving those federal funds. And so uh, that's, uh, it's, it's really not that unusual. And I said, it's, you know, it's happened a lot in history. And I, I find, you know, it interesting that we have this, this pushback when we have mandated vaccines uh, for school children in this state. And, and I'm glad we do. And, and we've always uh, lauded the fact that we have those. So clearly the state can dictate uh, and mandate vaccines for college students and, and, and children entering school. And why can't the federal government say when someone receives federal dollars, if you're receiving federal dollars, then uh, we expect uh, you to uh, comply with our vaccine mandate? I'm not, I'm not sure there's I don't see the difference. Richard Gershon is a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. This weekend, the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals granted backers of the lawsuit an early victory. The court ordered a temporary stay on enforcement of the relevant mandates, citing grave statutory and constitutional issues. Coming up, a closer look at vaccine hesitancy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As pharmacies and healthcare providers begin rolling out the Pfizer vaccine, for 5 to 11-year-olds, appointments and wait lists are already filling up. The Gulf State's newsroom's Jalina Chatlani caught up with some of the first kids to get the shot at a community health center in New Orleans. On a Thursday afternoon in the parking garage at Crescent Care, staff members greet excited parents and children here to get vaccinated. Anjali. That includes five-year-old Anjali and her mom, Priya Lewis. Anjali wasn't nervous at all. My mommy drove me and I'm getting my shot. How do you feel about it? Good. Nationally, more than 8,000 children aged 5 to 11 have been hospitalized from COVID-19 and 172 have died, according to the CDC. Local health officials recommend the vaccine for all eligible children. Anjali and her mom are looking forward to getting a taste of normalcy. So will it allow us maybe to see some people? My friends will be allowed to have sleepovers and my cousins in Mississippi. Yeah. While some parents are still skeptical, parents here said getting the shot was a no-brainer. Some of the kids said they were nervous. Others were clueless about what was happening. Some got COVID before and don't want it again. All right, can I get a high five? Anjali said the shot only pinched a little. I don't mind shots. I don't mind shots. What do you hate? I don't like COVID tests where they have to stick it all the way up your nose. Pharmacies like CBS and Walgreens are already taking appointments. 
Doses will become more widely available in doctor's offices and schools in the coming weeks. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chatlani. Mississippi residents can also schedule an appointment at local county health departments. The state has ordered around 51,000 shots for 5 to 11-year-olds. Still ahead, a deep dive into vaccine hesitancy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's made real advancements in terms of its COVID-19 vaccination rate over the past several months. But nonetheless, only about 46 percent of the state's population has been fully vaccinated against the disease. That's well below the national average. Public health officials say getting the shot is by far the best way to protect oneself against COVID. So why are so many Mississippians still not rolling up their sleeves? And why is most pro-vaccine outreach falling on deaf ears. Today, we hear from two experts on the subject, Annie Kafer and Megan Rosenthal, who are part of a community-based research center at the University of Mississippi called UM Crew. MPB's Michael Guidry hosts that conversation. What does your research right now kind of reveal about what's contributing to hesitancy, at least in, in Mississippi, if not, if not broader, if your, if your research takes you there? Yeah, so I think in a broader sense, um, the the communication about the vaccine, what it is or what it does, um, I think we haven't had a, a really good, concise, accessible message about the vaccine early on when people were sort of really in or were really primed to get the vaccine, because what we've seen over time is that people have become more hesitant, and I think that as the messaging becomes more complicated, that's one of the issues we see. I also think that from other work that we've done, we know that folks get a lot of their information in the communities that we work from radio and local television. And a lot of the, the vaccine messaging has been through social media, national news networks. Um, and so we, we may not be, or we likely aren't reaching particular subsets of the population. And that's, I mean, that's an important factor. And Megan, do you have anything to add to that? There's a, a theory that we came across in our work talking about, it's called moral foundations theory. And what it talks about are, are kind of six dimensions and this idea that people based on their culture and their values and, you know, geopolitical space fall into kind of, kind of either side or, or uh, on this spectrum between care and harm, authority, subversion, loyalty, betrayal, liberty, oppression, purity, degradation, and fairness and cheating. And if you look to some of the, the, the conversations that have happened around, um, you know, the vaccine in particular, but in risk assessment and hesitancy more generally, you can see opportunities for how this particular theory can be applied and how it might be informative and how we move things forward in, in the future. I think the other thing I would add around the social media piece of this is that we, you know, as, and this is a function of social media, we curate who we have access to in terms of messaging, right? We decide what kinds of messaging enter any of our platforms. And so if we're not... Um, the messaging that we're receiving from the CDC or the federal government or whomever is not in alignment with our own perspective on the world. We're not going to be receiving that messaging on, on our Facebook page or our Instagram page or Twitter or what have you. And I think that a little bit we could 
benefit from a little bit more careful and tailored messaging in those avenues, right? I think that we have, you know, public health officials and, and public health, you know, kind of practitioners around the country. I would say if you if you look back to that moral foundation theory, tend to to lean in in one direction and to the neglect of the other direction, right? If we're talking about doing this for the greater good, it's our social responsibility to take care of our community members, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of messaging doesn't necessarily resonate with all of the people who would need to have that vaccine. If you've if you've been able to identify what is kind of the intersection between the the moral foundation of those people and the message that that needs to get to them, have you kind of been able to pinpoint that? So this is kind of all theoretical so far. We came across this as part of the work that we're going to be doing with some students here on campus. But as an example, um, and, and this is from a, a paper from Nature Human Behavior. What they talk about if you're if you're working with folks who who are on kind of the the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what they're what they what messages resonate with them. So if it is your you know if you're thinking about purity, authority, and loyalty, a potential approach for messaging could be something along the lines of demonstrate your respect by following examples of your religious or political leaders who defend America's natural environment. And this is some messaging that was created to help people better understand climate change. On the other side of that spectrum, if you're talking more onto the liberal um, side of the equation that talk about fairness and caring, they're talking about here, do the right thing by preventing um, suffering of all life forms, making sure that you no one is denied the right to a healthy planet, show your compassion. So really, we're talking about kind of individual responsibility versus collective responsibility. We, we know we have segments of our population, especially here in the South, that fall into either end of those spectrum. And so if we're not, we're messaging more so to one end to the neglect of the other. I, I think it makes sense that we should be shifting some of our attention to that other side of the equation so that folks understand and hear the message that's being delivered. Pfizer and Moderna are mRNA vaccines. Um, they were created, went through trials they were, and approved at a pretty rapid pace, which I think anecdotally, and I imagine on some level, uh, observably, uh, scientifically feed hesitancy. Uh, but the mRNA technology itself it has been in research and development for about two decades. So how does that kind of intersect with what we're dealing with here, with a, with a, a vaccine that people aren't confident about? Sure. Yeah. So diffusion of innovation theory gives us a way to think about groups of folks who may or may not adopt a particular strategy, innovation, and in this case, a vaccine. And so we've seen, you know, the the early segments of those folks. You have your innovators. They're the first ones to sign up, right? Like they they are the ones that went to those vaccine trials and got the vaccine before it was fully approved, right? Um, you have your early adopters, right? So folks who probably perceive the risk of COVID as much higher than whatever risk is associated with the vaccine. And then you have what we call an early majority. This is all jargony, so I apologize. And, and those are folks that still feel like whatever risk the, the vaccine presents is less than the risk of getting COVID and having severe consequences from COVID. We have seen all of those folks, like if we look at, we look at this theory across all different types of technologies, we know that it's a, it's a bell curve, right? And that early majority splits it right in the middle. So all the people who are going to be on board with this and, and get the vaccine, they've already done it. 
what we're trying to do, I think, is, as folks who work in public health and work in community health, what we're trying to do is figure out how do we move what they call the late majority. So folks that aren't totally convinced that the, the vaccine risks are less than the risks of COVID. And then um, I don't know why they haven't thought of a better term for it yet, but they call them laggards. And it's a terrible term, but that's what the literature refers to. <laughs> and these, these folks are much more risk averse. Laggards are, are highly risk averse. They don't want to try new things until... It's, it's already widely adopted or it's, um, it's sort of legis- legislatively enforced. <laughs> They're not going to do it. Because like you said, mRNA has been in production a couple of decades, but that technology hasn't been out. Like we don't talk about it in these sort of public forums. So while it is not new to folks developing the vaccine, it is new to people hearing about it. And so that we have to respect that just because we know about it doesn't mean that they've known about it and that they've sort of wrap their brain and and had time to appropriately assess risk for for themselves and their family. More after the break. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. We're talking with Annie Kafer and Megan Rosenthal of UM Crew about vaccine hesitancy. Here's Michael Guidry. Megan, you mentioned earlier on the 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 bubble people live in, or kind of the the their funnel of information, and how it's often maybe kind of closed off. Is there an intersection there between how much people kind of curate? what they do observe and the information they take and how reluctant or necessary or on the other side, eager they are to to get a vaccine. So if we are curating our, our social media experience and we are already kind of on that more hesitant side and we see a, an an announcement or a whatever tweet or something from somebody who's had an adverse outcome as a consequence of of the vaccine. And that leads us. And and we know this based on how those algorithms are designed. You know, you like something like that. The algorithm says, Oh, you like this. Okay. I'm going to feed you more of that. Right. And so, uh, so then we have a situation wherein they're getting, biased on the other side of the spectrum to say like, yeah, we've had all of these really adverse, you know, bad adverse outcomes as a consequence of this, of this vaccine, when in fact, the algorithm is, is maybe, you know, doing what the algorithm does, but feeding you stuff that's that if you look at, again, at that population level, isn't actually accurate in that in at that in that sense, right? Um, if you look at all of the people across the entire world that have gotten the vaccine, um, the number of really terrible adverse outcomes isn't, isn't actually that high. And in fact, if you compare it to some of the previous historical vaccinations that we get, thinking MMR and those kinds of things that we're totally normally getting all of the time, we, we're actually seeing fewer adverse outcomes than some of those other vaccines. And so, but you know, if that's what you're, if that's what you are liking in your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed or your Twitter feed, um, it feeds you more of that. And then suddenly that side of the equation is like, well, no, this is way more risky than I, that I actually think it is. Cause I have seen, or I have heard, you know, all of these other people that are having these bad outcomes, but we're not really comparing that on, on the, a large enough scale. I'd like to wrap up by uh, we've we've kind of alluded to the work you're doing, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to kind of explain the work you're doing, uh, the work you've done 
you know, what you're doing right now and, and kind of what the next steps forward are as um, as you explore vaccine hesitancy, both locally and, and I guess, broader? The, so as we talked about, we actually are working with a group, a big group of students here on campus to reach out to various communities around the state um, and, and talk to folks who have yet to get the vaccine, who are really fall firmly within that hesitant category. So we're not necessarily talking to folks who are anti-vaccine or and have decided fully, like, I'm absolutely not going to get it. But those folks who are like, mm, maybe, but I don't know what yet what I'm going to do. Um, and, and to hear their stories and, and, and to have a really good in-depth conversation with them about what they're understanding, how they're understanding it, and, and what we might be able to do to get them information that that is going to make them comfortable in in coming to the conclusion, you know, hopefully of of, of having the vaccine. And so um, our students have put together a really great interview guide, um, and we are looking to start those interviews hopefully in the next month or so. And we'll likely be be collecting data into the new year. And once we've collected that data, we're going to use that to create some messaging that we're going to take back to our our the folks that participated in the interviews with us and say, does this messaging make sense to you? Does this messaging address the concerns that you raised? And how can we make sure we get this messaging into the hands of other folks like you so that we can, you know, spread this message in a way that's going to access that that last, you know, those last pockets of folks who have yet to get the vaccine. So, um, Annie, what did I forget? That's the big one. I, I want to also reiterate that we did this, this project, it comes out of an initial, um, scramble to do some homework around vaccine hesitancy. So lots of assumptions were being made about vaccine, like why folks weren't getting the vaccine. And, you know, there's, there's two components. One was, was access, right? That vaccines were rolled out online. It was online appointments. And, you know, some of the broadband issues that we face in this state made that particularly difficult for, um, for folks. But that doesn't account for everything. We also ran into um, some pretty pervasive assumptions that um, vaccine hesitancy was disproportionately one group. And we know that that's not the case. Um, we, we ran the numbers at a county level. Both um, deaths and vaccination rates are the same across race, right? What we really are seeing are differences in, in age group. Now, we suspect that the motivations for hesitancy are different among different groups, but in terms of actual getting the vaccine, it's pretty consistent um, with everything except age. Age seems to be the, the sort of um, divider right now in, in terms of vaccine hesitancy. Annie Kafer and Megan Rosenthal are co-directors of UM Crew at the University of Mississippi. Thank you both so much for your time, uh, your perspective, your expertise. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.